Greetings, everybody, and welcome back to Gaming Materialists. This is Revolution and Vine Blog's monthly discussion of games, nerd cultures, and all things geek. And today we have an exciting show, but sadly, we are missing Discourse today. Discourse is streaming live because Games Workshop is doing its big announcement for probably for 10th edition. We may know soon. We'll probably know by the time this video is out. But uh, even though she cannot be with us today, she will be with us here in spirit. And of course, I am joined by the one, the only, C. Derek Vaughn. Hey, C. Derek Vaughn, how are you doing? I'm okay. It's a slow morning, but I'm doing well. Um, I, uh, I'm i on Team Doom for D&D, so... Uh, oh, you're on Team Doom for D&D, so yeah. yeah. So our topic for today... Vaughn, do you want to give us a little bit of background before we bring our guest in? Well, I think our topic for today is when D&D and the future of D&D products and between the fact that they seem to be investing a lot on a very specific kind of online role play that has a lot of computer requirements and uh, will probably entail a lot of, of not just, you know, monetizations, but sub-monetizations and small monetizations. Um, uh, I think about my experience with uh, with official D and D cell phone games, which are all kind of a money suck nightmare. Um, but also that the the actual book products recently have come out feeling, frankly, unfinished. Um, and so I am not particularly hopeful. But it also this in the past has not been that big a deal because there's been th- a, a third party market kind of making up the gap for anything that isn't really working in the books. That will probably also be a lot harder to do in the c- upcoming environment. Well, let's uh, let's bring our guest in for the day. He is uh, the master of Dungeon Masterpiece YouTube channel, which is a YouTube channel to that is dedicated to helping you be a better uh, dungeon master. Uh, He is also a trained, I want to say, international relations specialist who also uh, uses his training in international specialists to unlame role-play game settings, which usually have a terrible concept of geopolitics and class politics and so on and so forth. He is the one, the only Baron de Rob. Hey, Hi. how are you doing? Welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Well, it's a real pleasure, and thank you for joining us uh, today. So, as Vaughn kind of laid out at the beginning, um, you know, there's a lot of talk about something called One D and D. So, people who may be familiar with uh, Dungeons and Dragons as a tabletop role-play game, uh, and uh, would you be able? Could you outline, considering that you've discussed this on your YouTube channel and you are skeptical about what one D and D is, can you tell uh, people who are not super familiar what one D and D is, who are not following the D and D news but may role-play other games, what is one D and D? Why is it called one D and D? Why isn't it called you know, sixth edition Dungeons and Dragons. What's the background behind it, and what is the change from previous editions? So, one D and D is supposed to be a um, 
just kind of a, a, a repolish, a remix up, a reshuffle of fifth edition in order to do two things, in my personal opinion, that I've been able to observe so far. One, it's to simplify specific rules, specific rules, so that the game is easier to play. However, the simplification is also designed to create a foundation that more crunch can be easily added onto the game in order to facilitate the sales of more crunchy rule books. So um, basically, uh, we're going to see a simplification of the most baseline parts of the character creation process and, uh, and combat rules in general. However, we're going to also see more um, crunch or more specificity in detail of the fifth edition mechanics as it relates to uh, particular character classes, character abilities, etc. Um, it's kind of like the relationship that third edition had with 3.5 and Pathfinder, if if you were to, you know, 3.5 was more of just a, um, you know, a, a rules repolish. They they realized they got a few things wrong that were highly unbalanced. They republished the rules with the cleanup, and that was that. Uh, and then Pathfinder came along when they went to fourth edition and uh, basically created three, you know, third edition again, but better. And I think that's what we're exactly going to see with fifth edition is kind of the relationship that pathfinder first ed had with third edition it's it's not necessarily a you know if you blur your eyes it's everything's going to be backward compatible um but you know they're they're not trying to to um throw the baby out with the bathwater per se everything is still going to be backward compatible all your old fifth edition stuff is still going to work fine but um it's basically just a, a new framework or a reorganization uh, basically, quite frankly, honest to be a sales engine for more player character option crunch. Do you think? Uh, I mean, do you think this rules uh, change is needed? This this readdition is needed in in general. I mean, you mentioned that you see it as a a way to sell more books, but do you think there mm -hmm. is some utility to the changes that they're making, uh, an, uh, as an iteration rather than a new edition? I think that's kind of a loaded question. Um, and, and I, I say that because, you know, you can go looking through drive through RPG and there's a niche RPG for just about everything. So like when we say like, is it needed? Well, what problem are we solving? You mm -hmm. know, it, it, I, and that's why I say like, is the need selling more books? Then yes, it's needed. Mm -hmm. Um, cause you know, and you can see even how much their, their stuff, their sales have slowed down on some of these books you know on on what rudimentary figures you can get the stuff that's selling at the player's guide and the starter kit and nothing else is really doing it um so uh if, if you go look in their annual reports and whatnot um you know is it needed from a cultural standpoint i think fifth edition's fine for what it is i don't it's pretty well balanced there's it's it's i i don't see anything that is uh, immediately broken that needs like there isn't a gameplay problem that needs to be solved i feel right. like they they did a good job when they were first publishing fifth edition to play test it and uh it is it is a really cohesive system like when it comes to the editions of dungeons and dragons just throw my own opinion out there you know i am just as much a fan of bx moldvay as i am fifth edition i play both of them equally so um 
you know, and which is really funny because I get a lot of people telling me that I'm like this, you know, OSR gatekeeper, which is laughable because all I, all my channel, the channel tries to do is take like elements of the OSR concept and bring it into the edition. But, um, <laughs> but um, is it needed? What's so, I mean, and does yeah. it solve that goal, you know? So, I mean, so the, what you would say is in terms of a rule set, and I think this is a pretty fair assessment, fifth edition uh, does what it's supposed to do. I mean, in Absolutely. terms of, in terms of a genre of role play game, uh, I have some issues with it because of the power levels, because of the superherification of first level characters. But as a rule set itself, the core mechanics are quite easy to learn. Everybody can play them. It's not super complicated. Character creation isn't particularly uh, difficult. And at the end of the day, if you know you don't like certain aspects of the game, the characters being too powerful, you can either make the things that they're fighting way more powerful, or you can kind of nerf the the. I mean, I believe there's a there's something I've used before, which is called uh, D&D Hardcore Edition, which is just by uh, Hank Inferno. Yeah, it's yeah, like yeah. a good. It's just a good way to like tone down some of the power levels. So, you know, I would tend to agree, you know, in terms of a rule set, it does what it's supposed to do. It might not be everybody's cup of tea, but it's a good rule set. Would you agree with that, Vaughn? Oh, yeah, I, I think it's fine as a rule set. And, and um, well, I think it's I think it's base rule set is actually fine. One thing I can say is addendum rules have been largely incoherent. And that that's not unique to fifth edition. Um, it's actually kind of weird that like third edition was and three point five was better on that. Um, uh, that's my only real complaint is that you have these modular projects that that have rules that are that are largely incomplete or don't play well with one another. I think the the biggest example would be when you find like ship rules. And the various um, uh, sea campaigns, like uh, the Salt Marsh book, are um, the uh, mostly the Salt Marsh book. And then you have ship rules and Spelljammer are the lack thereof, and you and they don't seem consistent at all. That isn't unique if people are familiar with like the end of first edition and the beginning of of second edition you have a uh, second edition ad and d you have similar problems where you have just you know rules that are developed by people on one project that aren't really cohesively integrated um that has become a problem in in fifth ed but it as far as the base rule set actually is pretty great like it, i i was a skeptic i came to fifth edition very late um i was a holdout because I was burnt by by fourth, and I was burnt by the, like just the rules creep of three point five too, honestly. And um, this edition seems to have been much better on that. But there are a couple. I mean, there's been a couple of trends that have concerned me, particularly with uh, the way they use uh, Ernest Arcana uh, announcements and kind of play test through that. Um, and then, like I said, the finished products don't really have cohesive visions at all. Um, so as far as what it is, it is what it is. I like that, um, 
one one thing that I have liked is, is a major change from third uh, edition and even maybe fourth edition is that world building has been prioritized, but largely set on the um, on the DM. And while there are things like it mentions stuff from the seventies and eighties in books and never even like really goes, you know, like I've, I've seen them throw off, you know, Greyhawk as a world. And I'm just like, well, but who, who, who's not 40 knows anything about that. Um, but, uh, beyond that, I think, uh, the world building has been kind of also nice and modular and open for other developers to come in and do stuff. And I think that's been good. Um, I get a feeling that may change in, with one D and D actually. Um, but maybe I'm wrong about that. Um, but I will also say a lot of these books do feel, um, to me to be increasingly incomplete, even though they're bigger box sets, which that, that seems to be driving them. Like, like I, I can't for the life of me figure out, I know I've been harping on it all day, but the spell jammer thing was like such a, such a surprise to me how unfinished that product felt despite being three books um, and the page count of the books being actually quite low. Any thoughts, uh, uh, Baron, on, on, on the products that Wizards of the Coast have been putting out with fifth edition, any trends that you're noticing with it? Yeah. So um, you kind of touched on a few things I'll comment too. Um, one of them is using the uh, unearthed arcana and, uh, player response surveys as the basis for developing the product. And I feel like that that is an extremely folly and flawed way of handling customer feedback. And a far better methodology would be to find players in game stores who are very casual players and focus group them. Uh, and I say that because the people who respond to surveys are the people who are generally very interested in the meticulous mechanics of the rules and are very eager to make sure that their voices are heard. And that's a very small percentage of players that actually perceive Dungeons and Dragons in that methodology. Most people just want to show up and, you know, uh, throw some dice, drink some beer, eat some pretzels and play a game, crack goblin skulls. That's, that's 99% of the players. So uh, taking uh, user response from surveys is basically only listening to the most loud and obnoxious 1% of players that are participating in that feedback. And, you know, to, to the people who um, might, you know, scoff at me saying that, uh, you know, and there's nothing wrong with being engaged in the product and wanting to make sure that your voice gets heard. However, this kind of problem that I'm illustrating, I say it's a problem because it's what killed the RTS industry. And the only thing that's still alive now is StarCraft 2. And it's limping on, what, 15, 10 years later? It's mm -hmm. just barely limping on. And the reason was is because the, uh, the, role, the RTS industry was constantly taking feedback from the most engaged, most professional, most uh, competitive gamers, and they left everything that the casual gamer, which was 95% of their cons consumer base, they left 95% of their consumer base basically ignored, who were just casual gamers that wanted something fun to do after work and play through a storyline. Um, 
you know, so so the solo casual mode got completely squashed, and uh, all the 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 uh, the statistics for all the little different fiddly behaviors of of the Zerg and Marines was fine tuned to the nth degree, but the casual players never even see the payout on that. They don't even know that that happened. Um, and I so to double back to uh, fifth edition, I was also talking with um, another. Uh, YouTuber and blogger by the name of Justin Alexander. He has a YouTube channel and a blog, both called The Alexandrian. Um, and we had a passing conversation and he mentioned something that really jumped out to me. He said, all the stuff that looks incomplete, it's actually not. It's that they are creating the content with the intent or with the practice that it will be used in a virtual tabletop environment. And the moment you you throw a virtual map on a screen and start going through these modules that have been recently published. And this is especially true with Rhyme of the Frostmaid. Um, you suddenly realize that there's all kinds of details that you would expect to, to find in a book that are just apparently on a virtual map of the setting mm -hmm. that people can just look at. So, uh, you know, I, I feel like they're catering, they're practicing catering to that virtual space and uh, it may be that they've done some market research and have found that the vast bulk of people who uh, participate in, you know, tabletop role playing at an actual table are people who are building their own worlds and largely they can ignore, if that makes sense. That makes that makes a lot of sense. I mean, this is a very interesting uh, trend, mm -hmm. and and we'll yeah. get. To, and that's we'll, that's just my hyperbole, by the way. Like I have no, and that's just an assumption based on things I've seen. I have no data to corro corroborate that statement. So but that would make a lot more sense, though. <laughs> I mean, it fits in right. with a broad. It fits in with a broader pattern. I think you know this. This is a good point to pivot to the other important aspect of one D and D, which is the integration of the virtual tabletop. Now, it's my suspicion, and maybe uh, you guys disagree with me, that this notion of the virtual tabletop uh, explains a lot about 4th edition D&D, &D, which uh, I, think, I think somehow might have worked as a rule set quite well on a virtual tabletop. People complained that it was too World of Warcrafty, but it, uh, I do remember reading that they did have plans to have like a proper virtual tabletop to role play with fourth edition yep. but now obviously there's been technological advances which make that more plausible and i think more importantly uh virtual tabletop software has become widespread virtual uh, role playing using virtual tabletops and for people who don't know for people who still role play in the old-fashioned way it's now possible to get a piece of software, Roll20, Foundry. There's a, very, a fantasy, fantasy Grounds. These are all softwares that allow you to integrate your, you, to conduct your role play games online. They, the, uh, companies produce resources to support these online tabletops. But these are third-party softwares, not controlled by Wizards of the Coast. And another important aspect of 1D&D, which is something you talk about in your uh, video about 1D&D, which will be in the description of this um, uh, episode, is this new virtual tabletop. And I'm just going to pull up some pictures for people to have a look at. You can take a look at what we're talking about. This is a picture of their virtual tabletop. 
you can see you have your fake little minis there. And there we have some more, you know, measuring devices. So basically, uh, this is what a virtual tabletop looks like. But this version of a virtual tabletop is in graphical terms, you know, way above what exists at the moment. So, Brian, could you talk to us a little bit about this online aspect of 1D&D, what it means and why you're skeptical of it? Um, it's not that I'm skeptical of a virtual play space. A virtual play space is fine. You know, if you want a virtual play space, that's, that's completely acceptable. You know, I, I don't have any issue with Foundry or Roll20 or Tailspire or any of those uh, third-party softwares that, that do this sort of thing. Um, what I am, and it, it's not that even that I'm skeptical, uh, and, you know, for the clickbait, my video is very open gloom. It's that I'm, I'm always the kind of person who looks at how today's solution is going to be tomorrow's problem. Um, and the, the thing that I see here is we have a, you know, especially with, thanks to the pandemic, you've got a lot of people who want to be able to play D and D as if it were a video game. This is very much uh, a thing with uh, Gen Z who's they've been raised on smartphones and tablets since they were toddlers, you know, that kind of virtual integration is just something they're accustomed to, but they're not old enough. You know, they're going to scoff when I say this, they're not old enough to watch software die, like just disappear. Um, you know, the, the, and, and, and that's the real big issue here is that this tabletop one there, the, the virtual tabletop that wizards of the coast is creating, if it is successfully created, that's a big if, um, if it is successfully created, it will create this nexus center of gravity within the D and D ecosystem that will pull all the players, especially virtual casuals into that ecosystem and because of the way that the ecosystem will likely be constructed, where you have to pay for licensing for the books, for the characters, for the minis, for, you know, you know, microtransaction poses, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, you get more and more locked into that system. And uh, what's more is that all of the adventure writing, all of the uh, all of the, the source materials that are third party published energy will be turned away from just simply writing an adventure. Uh, mm. You know, like probably my, one of my favorite, um, uh, one of my favorite adventures is Caverns of Thracia, just as an example, written by Janelle Jaquez. Um, and then probably my, my favorite starting adventure that I run players through is called A Most Potent Brew. And you can get that on DM's Guild. Uh, but those two adventures only exist in, pdf format i think post a most potent brew has a virtual tabletop version and i think goodman games has a new fifth edition version for caverns yeah. of thracia as a virtual tabletop now um they're at least like, developing it they're at least developing and you can get it integrated into roll 20 or something like that but in the future the amount of actual like labor and lift that has to be done in order to create something if you want your stuff to be seen by people now, like let's say three years from now when this comes out, if you want your stuff to be seen by people now and talked about online, 
and get recognition for the work that you're putting in. You're gonna you're not gonna write an adventure as a PDF or as a book. You're gonna do it inside one D's virtual tabletop space. Cool. Well, that works for five, maybe eight years, but then the software dies and becomes mm-hmm. vaporware. And now all of that stuff, all of that programming, all of those assets, all of those triggered events that you have programmed into this adventure dies with it. So, you know, think about what was your favorite video game when you were when you were a kid, when you were like 12, 13 years old. And, you know, there are some video games that have stood the test of time, like Myst, for example, regularly gets remakes. But, you know, one of my favorite uh, RPGs even Fallout 1, the original 1998 release of Fallout 1, yep. it is a total pain to get that to run on a modern computer, even using good old games or something like that. And, uh, you know, is that is that what we want? One of the greatest classic RPGs to have happened to it? You know, where you have to go and find a Windows XP computer on... Uh, on eBay just to run your favorite RPG because that's where we're that's where this is going to go with a virtual tabletop ecosystem that is curated by uh, by Wizards of the Coast. Yeah, I mean this this actually is an interesting comparison because the virtual tabletop inter- ecosystem we were talking about the uh, fourth edition. The fourth edition was clearly built on modeling an MMOR, uh, MMRPG ecosystem, which is different. Um, and that's where the rule sets got so crazy. And you definitely, when you were playing that combat rules and they're nearly impossible to do, you're like, oh, with a computer, this would be done very quickly. But like when we actually sit down and play this at a table, it's going to take an hour and a half to run a combat scene, uh, which uh, which is why all the people I know who like 4th Edition didn't play it. Um, but um, like, are they played by uh, Feed of the Mind stuff? I'm like, yeah, this is mostly combat rules. Uh, I have seen slowly since 3.5 like this tendency to go to the re-war gamification bait uh, of uh, D&D and, and D&D related RPGs in general um, kind of off of the the drive to get video gamers in. Uh, and that's clearly what 4th Edition was trying to do. This is interesting to me because we have tech, we had a technological fix kind of ad hoc fix the problem. And like many of the internet's current technological fixes, like Substack or streaming software or whatever, it's actually not new technology. It's actually kind of old technology that's been finally just figured out how to be pieced together. But it was done in, an, in a kind of ad hoc manner. Well, with one D&D coming in and now we have an official form for that everything's tied into that uh the books are now written uh for that kind of gameplay so even if you are a, a classic tabletop gamer you're gonna have to do a lot more work to 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 make basic things run because of the assumption that this will run in the program and the program will have fixed all that for you and you don't have to think about it no more for fed problem with you know five hour long combat scenes however it also means that like the amount of work put into this uh, becomes really prohibitive. And I think that also changes who is going to engage in writing third-party stuff. Because I can tell you right now, um, people like me are just going to go do OSR stuff uh, because it's just easier to do. I don't have to hire a coder. Um, right. It's already, you know, it's already 
hard enough dealing with digital art and all this. And, and so it feels to me like a lot of this makes total sense for a short-term market share gain, but it makes no sense for, for longevity at all. Um, and, uh, you know, I, 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 maybe I'm wrong about that. Maybe people are assuming that streaming patches and all this will stop software, uh, you know, software depletion, but I, I have not seen where that's actually been the case, you know, so. Uh, I, I think right now, as far as business sense goes, this is a strong move for Watsi. Mm-hmm. Honestly, just because there's a, a market that is hungry for virtual table. Like one of the leading uh, things that I saw in my comment section was how I'm being the evil bad guy because I'm telling people in my video that they're wrong for wanting to play virtually, which is not the case at all. Um, they're more than welcome to play virtually. Uh, and they are new players that are playing virtually. I think what's interesting is that the marketing of Wizards of the Coast will always be making up, especially if they're not producing Hollywood blockbusters. You know, that is now going to be the marketing for getting people to play D&D. Uh, it's, it's part of the long-term ecosystem. So as long as, as long as their marketing strategy is constantly bringing in new players, that's not a big deal. Uh, it's kind of like the, the MCU uh, or the, you know, the Marvel Universe uh, thing. There's always going to be people who are interested in Marvel because they're always making new movies. Um, so, you know, it, it, it's it's uh, the, you know, that that's not what I think is the the issue here. It's that it, it's like a short term short term gain and medium term gain, but it's changing the way that. Uh, D and D will have its longevity persevere, if that makes sense. I think that's. A, I mean, I think this is an important point. I mean, we talked about the technological aspects of it, and mm-hmm. and I think you know, I think the first point that we all need to make, I think, is it is an open question whether the software will be functional or not, how successful it was, how what its UI will be like, how easily will it be to adapt uh, to adopt by people. Will it require a significant amount of processing power or something like that, which will make it un, uh, unaccessible uh, to many people? So the technical question is still an open question. We'll just have to see what Wizards of the Coast uh, come up with. They may be successful. They may not be successful. But I think from an economic perspective, I think you know the com- combination of this technology and the combination of a new set of economic incentives being injected into the system is could have a very problematic effect on the role play community uh, for example you know with third party uh, virtual tabletops well those are open to people playing other games people can play all kind you know companies can produce modules for uh, foundation or Roll20, uh, people don't aren't restricted to playing one particular game system. But, you know, I think, uh, Baron, you, you hinted at this, you know, Wizards of the Coast is trying to monetize, uh, try and find a constant money cow. Because, you know, at some point, yep. you, you have an edition, you sell the core rule books, 
market becomes saturated uh, and, you know, core rule books numbers go down or aren't doing as well as they had previously done. Growth slows. You try selling extra books, but, you know, not everybody who buys those core editions wants to play in your pre-made world and they make people like doing their own homebrews. So this offers an opportunity for massive monetization at a relatively low cost, you know, low production costs. You're just basically creating virtual assets. You pay the virtual asset makers and you do microtransactions and you have a, uh, you have a, uh, an economy that is increasingly based on an ethereal product that is produced once and then replicated for virtually no cost. So obviously this is a, you know, a way to extract profit, but once people, like you say, are dumping money into their virtual collection of D&D assets, the likelihood that they are going to abandon those assets to play a different game is going to be a lower. The, the fact that their virtual tabletop system that they're using is completely um, cut off from any other potential role-play game, well, that too is going to have a, uh, that's going to make it more difficult for people to access other role play games. There's been a kind of dialectic, uh, if you will, with the rise of the internet and the OSR is that, you know, in previous eras, D&D just dominated uh, the role play game uh, uh, industry because D&D was the only thing that people have heard of that broke in the 1990s, kind of came back in the early 2000s. But because, you know, people have blogs, people have YouTube channels, you can learn about other games. Um, but this is going to create a counter, an, a, a very powerful countervailing force, which is going to drive people more into the whole D&D &D and role-play games are synonymous. I don't even know there's another role-play game. It's like Games Workshop and Tabletop War Games. There are people out there who, like... They think Games Workshop is the only people who ever made a tabletop war game miniature game, right? Right. It's, because you they, either play 40K or you don't play anything. Exactly. So yeah. this is going to create that tendency because, I mean, I'm sure it's not hurting their business at all, but more and more people are trying out OSI games. And these games are cheap. These games often have better rule sets, more refined rule sets, and more interesting. Um, and... Uh, you know, that pathway, that funnel where people might go from fifth edition D&D &D to start playing OSR games, there's going to be a block put on that. And and I think that's deliberate. So, yeah, I mean, there's a lot going on here. I mean, one, you have a general tendency that this is not just true in the RPG market. This is true in all markets for people to want to get a, a ready income stream because actual profitability on actual commodities is kind of dicey. Um uh, it, that's just you see that everywhere in the economy. It's not unique to to gaming at all. Um, and we saw the microtransaction stuff already hit, uh, you know, video games too. The for the same reason, like microtransactions plus subscriptions have a much more steady income stream than. But what I find interesting about that is we're talking about how you get all this capture, and you're right about that. Um, about the uh, kind of market and development capture that you get with something like 1D&D. &D. But what I find interesting is in these systems, these virtual systems, uh, most of them do eventually collapse. Like, like 
like they just collapse under their own weight. You can't update the the software to modern computers enough, or um, people get tired of all the micro investments and move on to something new. And that dynamic does not seem to have been factored into this. And I mean, we studied what happened with White Wolf, where it messing around with a game model like this completely destroyed the company and the publishing model, then broke up the rights. Um, and so, like, I don't predict anything like that happening with D&D. Wizards of the Coast, a.k.a. Hasbro, has too much market share power. But at the same time, I do wonder if they could actually be like in the long run, what makes immediate business sense right now could actually be not not just disastrous to the hobby and knock on effects, um, but also disastrous to them when we hit the vaporware stage. And those two things together do worry me greatly, particularly if. They're only writing products with the assumption that um, most of this will be done through their virtual tabletop format. And it seems like that's where they're going. So just to kind of follow back on some stuff that you guys pointed out, uh, you were saying that um, like the virtual tabletop platform is cheap. It's an easy marketing model. And I'm not sure that that's an accurate representation. Software developers are extremely expensive compared to game writers. And it takes quite a bit more many of them to do it. So if it's going to be worth the investment, you're going to have to hire a crap ton of software developers in order to make a product like this happen. We're probably talking, you know, three to $5 million worth of salary in, in software and support uh, annually at the bare minimum to make something viable. Um, so... The, and that only makes sense if you've got Daddy Hasbro, you know, chomping at the bit to get as many right. transactions as possible out of the squeezed out of people. Um, but when this does finally hit vaporware stage, there, there's going to be another version of this out and they're just going to market it the same way. You know, it, it's just marketing. It's just going to be, it's basically going to become the video game churn, if that makes sense. Now, hmm. I think what you experience with, with White Wolf and honestly what the entire RPG industry experienced in the year 1999 when TSR was, you know, on its deathbed, um, you know, by having these uh, game system mix-ups or, uh, you know, corporate uh, mishandling of IPs, whatever it is there there is something that's going to happen eventually like you know it's it's obviously going to happen eventually uh something something cataclysmic is going to happen to the brand and it will nearly destroy the entire tabletop industry again uh like there were so many small game companies that just had to shutter their doors when tsr crashed and eventually got picked up by uh wizards of the coast that were just kind of feeding off the fact that even though they weren't even making D&D content, they were just feeding off the fact that TSR was creating this gravity well that everybody else could orbit around. Um, and so when, and, and I already, for me, I start to see this happening now, you know, how long is it before uh, games work or, or games workshop before wizards of the coast pulls the plug on wooden bookshelf? And says, hey, one bookshelf, I'm pulling the plug on the license for Faerun and Ravenloft, and we're going to bring that over into our one D&D ecosystem. 
that's gone now. So now the only thing left for drive through or for one bookshelf is drive through RPG. Well, it'll have some third party content, but half of the third party content stuff is now going to be made inside of one inside of one D and D. So now all of half of their inventory goes away. Sure. It'll still be there. It might be enough to keep the company going, but if you tell uh, roll 20, that 60% of their customer base is now gone because they're going to be over in one D and D VTT. I don't think, uh, you know, there's a certain level of development and support that just costs like it's a floor. It costs mm-hmm. X dollars to keep the developers salary paid that are maintaining roll 20. Not that they do much, honestly, it's a pretty buggy platform if you ask me, but just to keep that, uh, going, I'm, I'm not trying to throw shade on, on people. They should probably hire more people to clean the software up better. Um, but, uh, you know, there's a certain a threshold that has to be paid. And if you're not making a certain threshold, you know, if Roll20 isn't able to make, you know, three and a half million dollars a year, they can't keep the lights on. Just right. that's just mm-hmm. the way it is, you know. And so there's there's a, you know, the how what is that threshold for all these other smaller companies in the ecosystem? And once the lights get turned on for one D and D, how many other lights go get turned off? That's yeah, well, that's that's the question. I mean, it's interesting because uh, it, it, you know, I, I'm going to put on my my vulgar leftist economist hat here um, because I, I I see this this problem in other industries where when if you look at it from the standpoint of 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 income flows things make sense, but when you look at it from the standpoint of what you really need to invest to keep um, the the development clean because uh shannon information entropy is a motherfucker for for uh for for anybody dealing with software because you're going to have buggy code data uh data generation whatever that just happens it's part like it's literally part of physics um you need people to invest time and energy to go and rewrite the software and clean it up that's inevitable right um and that's a hard that's a, that's a hard that's actually a hard ass because because you need now more and more infrastructure to maintain these these simple income flows. The thing is though, it does look like from the accounting end of things that these things are actually highly profitable in the beginning because you don't spend that much except on marketing. Um, but I, I want to ask you how many many how many MMORPGs have ever successfully translated to multiple editions. Um, and the answer is I can't think of maybe but one. Um, wow, you know, it, it, like if you think about it, it, and that's because of these kinds of trends. Um, software software is very admin heavy for the reasons that we're talking about. Like, yeah, um, it, it is very costly to actually maintain, and while the initial profits on it are huge, if you can very if you can break that initial barrier of entry, which is pretty high which you don't have. I mean, that's, that's actually kind of why the OSR industry is, is, is so awesome. You don't have that barrier. Like the, the barrier is pretty low. You don't need that much investment. You got to pay an artist. Like that's pretty much usually it. Like, you know, and not in, even in that. Time. You just get some public domain art and slap it on there. Right. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> but the one, the one point, the point I would make from Wizards of the Coast perspective is precisely this. Uh, I mean, Baron, you're correct. Obviously, 
that you know maintaining and paying um you know the people to develop the software is much more expensive than developing um you know having writers do things writers will work for like peanuts you, yeah you, you can get pay a writer to... fifty thousand a year software but, developer is two hundred thousand in seattle <laughs> but the flip side is of course there's no there's not really much production out outlays to do so you're not so dependent on commodity prices you're not so dependent on like chains of production and things like that so it takes a lot of the complexity out so it's like a bigger investment upfront in maintenance but the potential for yep. ex meeting market demand it's like let's say you you have a product that's wildly successful and you sell out you have to suddenly reinvest money in a new production run which you don't know if that production run will sell out with this that's fair you're just, you're just basically uh you can ex you can expand production of virtual items like without any outlay so yes you're paying this big upfront cost which is something no one else can do right because you're the big daddy company uh and then you're also making it cheaper on another end because you can constantly expand without having to you don't have to pay the software developer more if he produce you know if you have uh, a million copies or 10 million copies or 50 million copies so th i think there's like there's this the, that's the attraction of right. the virtual you, you move out of income based on scale right profits become from from a technical uh, economic analysis, profits become rents, and that does seem more stable for a business um, because you just have to deal with your initial outputs and maintaining that staff. However, the the, the other part of this that I mentioned that, that is a problem is that if you just look at the long-term viability of systems and games that are electronic, like they like they almost all collapse in on themselves in a decade. That's, that's true. But you, you could also end up if, you know, Hasbro has the money and if this becomes successful, they could be the one that succeeds just like World of Warcraft is still viable as a as a MMO, even as others have gone to the wall. Thoughts, Baron? Um, I think it's interesting to talk about it from a supply chain perspective. Um, you know, asking people to pay for a book and then ordering it makes you reliant on a paper supply chain. Sure. Mm -hmm. uh, the book supply chain though has very few inputs to be successful. Um, and I honestly think that the supply chain for software is far is a, is a much Big higher uh, problem. Uh, you know, if, if you're trying to create software that is maintained and up to date, You've got a, it's a, it becomes a human resources supply chain. It's not, it's no longer like you can, you can hire a couple of artists and a couple of writers anywhere on the planet, especially if from uh, Eastern Europe where they're very well educated and work for a quarter of what Americans do and, uh, you know, get it, it, like, that's basically the magic, the gathering pipeline is they pull uh, from Latin America and from Eastern Europe quite often and uh develop an entire world in s six months and publish it and have all the cards drop you know so could it, and then you look at the amount of money that they're spending on um and on and the re required inputs 
that go into MTG Arena, I'm not sure that it's uh it's really all that much different. Hmm. And far yeah. as far as complexity or management of 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 what is needed in order to make the software work. All that said, I also kind of think that one shelf is sort of doomed. <laughs> for, oh, for, absolutely. For, uh, yeah, for absolutely. a variety of reasons. Yeah, um, the, like it's it's going to yeah. be weird that Itch.io is the one that survives, and that's only because it's like it appears to. I don't know enough about Itch.io, but it appears that there's enough churn on Itch.io that you know they're not they're not terribly concerned about the the chaff that gets put on there. You know, the anime dating sims that basically keep that that platform alive. <laughs> so, uh, you know, no offense to anime dating sim lovers, but. Uh, Triple A games, they are not. <laughs> yeah, it. it I, one of the things that really hurt Drive Through's model is they've had to move almost all electronic because people can't afford to buy their physical books anymore, and the quality of them, of the book build, is just not good. So, like, um, I, we've seen this. With, you know, the Drive Through RPGs model is the print on demand model, but now it's got because of it, and even with international supply chain problems. Going having you know a thousand books printed in China is still cheaper than, and you can still provide them cheaper than uh, you can provide. I don't know um, one book printed on Drive Through RPG of significant size because that's now going to be like an eighty dollar print, um, and right. that's that's not what that's not Drive Through RPG's fault. That's just like the the market demands um, and economies of scale. Um, which, you know, in my mind mirrors a whole lot of stuff we've seen prior to COVID where everyone assumed that you could run stuff like you'd run software. Um, and it seemed to pay off in the beginning so you could offer cheap products because you didn't have to maintain a warehouse or anything. And then all of a sudden you're dealing with the fact that you can't do it at economies of scale. And, oh, this good idea really wasn't actually all that good. Um, we, we've seen that a lot. But we still have seen, like like, I will say Kickstarter has managed for, you know, many companies to be able to put out a couple thousand, you know, uh, issues of a game in nice additions, you know, in quality, like, like it's actually it's one of the things I was laughing about the other day. I was like, I'm, I, I have some like eighties and nineties RPG books and I'm like, man, what a small company can put out now as a, as a physical product for the price point when you adjust for inflation is crazy. Like look at, yeah. um, uh the like like um any of the new rsr products that have physical books when you get those books they are they are nice they are better built than anything tsr could have done in the 80s or even the 90s no um, for sure for sure um but that th this th this is actually going to be an interesting an interesting thing be, to me because I, part of me wonders like are we going to go back to like the 90s where are like maybe the aughts actually the late aughts where we had where there was a where the indie gaming world was very much pivoted not as a supplement to to dungeons and dragons but because of the response to some of the changes in the open license code as as being against it and that was actually a very innovative time period that's like one that when i try to like not be a doom and gloomer about this i'm like could that happen as this kind of separates out and like we just think of these as separate worlds, like completely separate worlds. Oh, it it uh, absolutely will. It absolutely mm -hmm. will. 
and that that is the problem <laughs> mm-hmm. that's what i'm that's what my whole video's thesis is saying and i feel like a lot of people miss the point of my video i can't tell it's probably 60 percent of the comments are like this doesn't even bother me i don't care i'll just go play another game well of course you're just gonna go play another game of course you're just gonna go make your own other game that's fine go do it the problem is that new players that are coming into the yep. market will will be so deeply entrenched and exposed to D&D through the one the one uh, one D&D BTT that they won't even know that there are things they can google let alone right. knowing not knowing what they can google can google it's that they won't even know that they are there are things that they can google that will point them to other RPGs they won't have any exposure to it whatsoever they'll think that D&D is the tabletop RPG and that that concept doesn't exist anywhere else. It'll probably, and you know, they may, they may go 15, 20 years of their life after being exposed to D and D before they even realized that Pathfinder was a thing or call of Cthulhu was a thing. Hmm. You know, the two, two of the other largest games on the market. Well, I mean, yeah, I think that's a, it's. I mean, it's going to be an open question. I think the scenario that you lay, lay out, Baron, is an entirely plausible scenario. But there are countervailing forces to this in terms of, for example, the way people get information now through YouTube, through other, uh, you know, online mediums, makes it difficult to contain knowledge to the same degree so that maybe i actually dis- I, I i i my studies on parallel actually says that the opposite is true it's easier to contain knowledge when more of it is freely available um because no one knows how to find it and and uh that has very much been a trend on youtube but no, um, but that's good but it's going to be dependent the, the the kind of x factor in this point is you know because of the role that influencers play in marketing these games will we see will the let's say on balance the influence community pivot entirely towards dungeons and dragons or will the influencer community uh be more diverse in exposing uh, pe- uh people to other kinds of games so it comes down to like to use an analogy what is the vanguard of role play games doing there's like that's yeah like if you have no you know like you have a community of role players you have tastemakers in that community who have enormous followings and who what they say filters down into the broader community uh through word of mouth you know it's going to be a question of what that what that kind of highly engaged influencer section of the role play community does like for example if you know, let's say, what are the guy? Uh, what are the guys called? The the ones that everybody watches. I, my brain. Critical is the, role. The yeah. the the what one? Critical role. Critical yeah, role. Yeah. 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 Like if if Critical Role starts playing, I don't know, Mothership, right? The role play game Mothership, and loads of people watching right. that. That's going to be a massive right boost for thing. So the we have seen that before with pet with 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 critical role even before they were so massive dropping pathfinder for fifth for the edition which i think people even forget happened so, so you know, right so so there are these there are these x factors in which are like down to the agency of the community 
and particularly of those at the forefront of the community in making taste. So I, you know, I think Baron's scenario is plausible, but I think there are ways that this w could not turn out in the way that we think it is, depending on the action of the community. Sure. So any any final words then? Yeah, I would be really skeptical. You know, I, I would consider myself probably like the top end of C tier YouTuber in mm -hmm. the D and D space, if that makes sense. Um, and in this position, like I regularly go into game stores and just about every other time I go into a game store, I get recognized. It's, it's happened now, you know, I'll bump into people that are like, Hey, you're dungeon masterpiece, right? Uh, I get approached on the street now. Um, I've got multiple videos with over a hundred thousand views. And I look at like who is in the D and D dungeon mastering advice niche on YouTube, who is bigger than me. And, you know, there's a handful of maybe, maybe a dozen, maybe two dozen people. And, um, you know, it's like Matt Colville is probably the biggest one. Jenny D is, is mm -hmm. in the A tier. Their videos are only clocking, you know, something like 250,000 views a video. And Matt Colville now, he's only, as far as view count goes now, he's not much bigger than myself. So um, I am very skeptical of how much influence these people have, except for maybe the, the very top tip of the iceberg, like you're talking about with Critical Role. Um, you know, the question then becomes is can these small little game developers afford a ad placement on critical role that gets, you know, 2 million views, multiply two, you know, divide 2 million by a thousand and then multiply that by 35 to $40. That's how much they're making off of every ad placement, you know, you know, just to, just to blow the socks off of everything out here. You know, it, it's an easy formula to figure out. Um, you know, it, there's there's a formula for this. And can these companies uh, afford, hey, I want you to run a one-shot in my, in my game system. You know, maybe they pick it up organically as a tastemaker, sure. But the fact that Critical Role dropped Pathfinder and goes to 5th edition, just because that's ever, what everyone is most familiar with, I'm just yeah. I'm just skeptical how much actual influence these smaller companies are going to have. Yeah. You know. I mean, yeah. I, mean, I, like, I can I can Cobalt, small I, Go ahead. Go ahead. No, I mean I was thinking about Cobalt Cobalt and companies can 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 get Jenny D to endorse their products or be in commercials but they have to pay for it. And yeah. and these are these are also these are companies that are also fairly large. I mean like um Cobalt, Pazo, etc. um and they're they're not super profitable um, uh, uh, companies, despite that. I mean, like I've looked at the the, the back end on the on the profit margins on a lot of this stuff. Um, right. The other thing I would add to it is like we we shouldn't pretend influencers are organic when there's an algorithm driving their engagement, and that the true. algorithm right. can be affected by pay. <laughs> like that's like... that's that's very true. <laughs> That's very true. So, so it's a pretty gloom and doom scenario. So we're up against the hour. Uh, before we sign off, Baron, do you have anything to tell our audience about? Anything upcoming? 
any uh any, anything that should be paying attention from you well anything? uh you can come out and meet me in la on the 21st and i think tickets will still be available when this hits the airwaves in the 15th so or whenever it's 15 uh the 12th or the 19th the, yeah um <laughs> in, in two weeks on a wednesday um yeah. Uh, so you can come out and see me there. Uh, it's at the Telegram Ballroom, and you can go to T- uh, This Is Revolution's website for information on uh, tickets and whatnot. Um, other than that, uh, I got a bunch of serious stuffy stuff coming out about like indigenous issues and political economy, and and you know the kind of boring stuff that I do that gets about a hundred, uh, gets about a thousand views <laughs> uh, on YouTube. So uh way loud on the order of scale because it's depressing and that's what i'm doing and i will continue doing it over at barn block and that's all i gotta plug <laughs> baron anything yeah. to plug any uh, plugging no no i'm kind of in a holding pattern right now my summer was exceptionally busy uh and i'm just trying to figure out, i'm just trying to get my head back above water i've got a lot of stuff that i want to do i think I'm, I'm actually considering i'm thinking through hiring some kind of a production assistant or uh you know a content coordinator or something like that so i guess keep your eyes and ears out for uh something like that if, if you're interested um, i might start putting out a call for resumes here in the next month or so um but yeah i'm, I'm gonna I'm, I'm slowing down to speed up right now <laughs> i don't really yeah, have yeah. i've got a few ideas that i want to do but i i, I don't want to overcommit myself so well a wise man well yeah um thank you for joining us i hope you do consider joining us again in the future and as we say on tir we are out